So we are looking at the mercy seat tonight. Exodus chapter 25, and if you'll find your space in, uh, place in verse 10. Exodus 25, verse 10, And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make uh, upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even the mercy seat, shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Thank you. You may be seated tonight. It's safe to say that Everyone in the world has an expectation of who God is. I mean, you talk to people, you meet with people, who do you think God is, or who, who do you think that the Lord is, or what comes to your mind when someone mentions to you the word God, and some believe that God is primarily a God of love, and that is true. I mean, a lot of people out there, oh, He's a God of love, you know, how He, he couldn't send anyone to hell. He's a, he's a God of love, and, and he, is, he is a God of love. 1 John 4, 4 8 tells us so. Others, when thinking about God, immediately move to His holiness. And I have, to, to be honest, that's kind of where I always you know, tend to lean, is on the holiness of God, because He is a thrice holy God. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 tells us, the angels cried one to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so I, when I think of the Lord, man, I think of His holiness. And I can't wait to see Him face to face, but He is a thrice holy God. And then there are others in the world who, who have a different take. You know, there's the God of love, you know, He's a merciful God, a graceful God, a, a gracious God. I remember in Bible college, oh man, I'm so dumb sometimes. In Bible college, I was a freshman, you know, and I was excited, naive, and I was in class, and, and they said, what do you think about who God is? And, you know, the people were saying love and holy and just, or not just, love and holy and something. And I raised my hand, judgmental. <laughs> and they're like... Well, maybe not judgmental, and I'm like, oh yeah, rats, not judgmental, he's a, he's a just God. <laughs> but at any rate, but then there are other people who have different things, pictures of who God is, and, and, and some people in the world picture God as someone who is indifferent. Well, you know, there's, if there's a God in heaven, he doesn't really care, is what they'll say, or, you know, uncaring or unkind, and, and there's a lot of people out there in the world who even deny his existence. They say there is no God, and if there is a God, you can't even know him. There's atheists who say there's no God, and agnostics say you can't know Him. I think they're just kind of chicken uh, to be a full-blooded atheist, but they say, well, you can't even know Him. And then there's yet another group of people in the world who just are simply afraid of God. I mean, they're just flat-out scared of, of God, that like He's you know, in heaven just waiting to destroy, and He's waiting to pounce on, 
uh, uh, people who are being disobedient, and they're afraid that he's angry with them. You know, there's even born-again believers who believe that God is angry with them. He's angry with them, and that's one of the reasons why they don't come to church, or they don't serve, or they used to be faithful, and they used to go, but they don't go anymore because, man, alive, God's angry with me because of the things that I have done. They're not good enough, or, or they're not good enough to, to be able to be used by him. And they're saved, and, and, but they've messed up here and there, and they're afraid that he's done with them, and there's no way the Lord's going to give me a second chance. There's no way the Lord's going to give me a third chance, or a 30th chance, or a 50th, or an 80th chance. Let me tell you what, I'm thankful for a God who gives us 80th chances, aren't you? Mercy sakes alive. Maybe you've been like me before in times past and said, Lord, here I am again. I'm sorry. And I'm talking about the same thing again. Anyone besides me have gone there like that? I'm telling you what, there's been time, there were times in my past where I was embarrassed to come to the Lord in prayer because of my disobedience to Him. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Anyone besides me like that? But you've, had, you've had times like that in your life? And, and some people are just afraid to come to the Lord. They're afraid of, of what God's going to say or do. And, and there are, so there are multiple beliefs in the world as to just who God is. Who is God? So I think after we look at the passage of Scripture this evening, we're going to be very thankful for what we find. So we come to the last of the, of the tabernacle furnishings this evening, and, we, and as we're going to look at the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, and keep in mind the two main pers- purposes for this tabernacle as it was placed upon the earth by God Himself, and it was where a place where, where, where God could dwell with men. It, it was a, a, a place where God could dwell with, uh, among men and a place where men could worship a holy God. And so this was established, it was set up by Him and for Him, where He could dwell with them and they could have a, an opportunity to come and worship. And if men, here's the thing, if men would approach, uh, would worship a holy God, they have to approach Him in the manner that He prescribes, which is what we've been talking about all week long. There has to be a proper manner, a proper path, a proper way to go to, to get into the presence of a holy God. So, the Lord prescribed that they build a tabernacle and all the furnishings within to allow man to have the ability to come into His presence. Now, each one of these furnishings were necessary for the high priest to be able to come into his presence, and for just a quick overview, actually, let's put that first one up. Uh, I think Brother Andrew or someone got this, found this, which is a whole lot better than that one last night. This is a kind of an overview of the courtyard. You remember the, the courtyard, the entrance gate, you can see on the far right on the east, you walk inside and there's the altar of burnt offerings, which speaks of our need for reconciliation, the need for atonement, and then you would go a little bit further, going from the east to the west. You'd hit the bronze laver, and that was the need for cleansing. You walked inside the the tent of the tabernacle, walked inside the door of the tabernacle itself, and on the left you had the golden lampstand that we talked about, which is the light, and the table of showbread, which were to place our lives before the face, before the presence of God. And then last night we looked at the altar of incense, which was hard pressed up against the veil, and that of course symbolizes the prayers of the saints, uh, of the children of Israel, and talked about that, our need for prayer uh, uh, even to this very day. And so again, the entire purpose for allowing or for following each step as the Lord commanded was for the purpose of meeting with Him. The tabernacle was to be the place, the very special place where God's people came seeking His presence and seeking His forgiveness and seeking, seeking His assurance, His strength, His guidance, everything that they needed. I'm telling you what, it all revolved around the courtyard and the tabernacle therein. It all revolved around God, and rightly so, everything we do revolves around God. I mean, he is our primary focus. He's everything to us. And we've already been talking about this all week long, so don't try not to repeat every, what, we're, what we've been talking about. But the next furnishing we come to uh, in, the, in the tabernacle is the one of utmost importance. is the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the most holy place. Now, 
really, I don't, if I'm not mistaken, I, I don't remember, I don't think in the Bible it actually ever says the Holy of Holies, but that's what we call it. It always calls it the most holy place. So when the, when the priest went past the, the, the brass laver and stepped into the tent, into the tabernacle itself, he was in the holy place, ministering about the holy things. But then to get into the most holy place where the tabernacle was, they could only go into that room one time of year, remember, on the Day of Atonement. They, they went into the holy place every single day, morning and evening, ministering, but they couldn't go into the, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was except for just one day a year. And so the one behind the veil that separates it from the other items is the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. So go ahead and put up the other slide, and we have a, a general picture, a general idea, a picture of what this Ark of the Covenant uh, uh, looked like. Now, it's humanly, <laughs> let me just throw this out there, it's humanly impossible to preach about the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat in one message. I mean, I'm just telling you what, it's not going to happen. You know, we can't cover this. This is impossible, but I want to look at some of the highlights of the of the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat tonight, and then make some application. So this was, uh, so this was the end result uh, desired. This was what we were looking for. Uh, it, it's, what we're looking for is to get into that presence. And I know we've been talking about it all week. And every single one of us ought to desire to be in the presence of God. And, and people out there in this world, they need to know God and they need to understand about who He is. But listen, it's one thing, listen folks, it's one thing to, to know about God and to know about the atonement and to know the need for cleansing. It's one thing to know about the candlestick and, and to know about this showbread. It's one thing to know about prayer. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a scholar on prayer. It's one thing to know all about that thing, those things, but it's quite another thing to step into His presence. And to have a right relationship with Him. I think that's where some of our teenagers get in trouble. They know all about God, but they don't actually know God. They need to know Him. And we as a congregation, I'm just telling you what, we can be all full of book knowledge and know about God, but man, we need to know Him. And that only comes about through a right relationship with Him and getting into this most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the presence of God Himself is. You know, it's interesting, you know, have men come down and pray? And we prayed several times already this evening. But when we were praying, we were ushered into this most holy place. We were in, it just didn't happen to be in a tabernacle. We were ushered in the presence of our Heavenly Father. So, this is the end result right here this evening, this week. Everything else uh, with the tabernacle led up to this item right here. The Ark of the Covenant was the, uh, and the mercy seat, which was uh, to be in the presence of God Himself. And it's pretty amazing for the children of Israel. So, the... The tabernacle as a whole certainly drew people to approach God for help. I mean, you know, when you come across, you know, when you, when you come into the camp of Israel, and I, I preached in the book of Exodus, and I, I skipped uh, Leviticus and went right into Numbers because that's kind of more of a chronological. And man, as the, as the nation of Israel was encamped around the, the, the courtyard in the tabernacle, I mean, this, it was all, the tabernacle was in the center, the courtyard was in the center of all the tribes uh, encamped round about. And I'm just telling you what, it certainly drew people to approach him, but it was knowing, it was knowing that the ark of God, God's holy presence that sat in the midst of the tabernacle, that especially drew them. I mean, that's, that's really why they came to worship, is to, to see the presence of God, or to have God's guidance upon their life, and man, that's why, we, that's why we do what we do, folks, is to have God's hand upon us, and to be in his presence. That's why we come tonight, and that's why we sing, and that's why we give, and that's why we praise his name and pray, because listen, we must have God's hand upon us if we're going to make any difference in this world. So the Ark of the Covenant was actually in two pieces. It was two items. There was the Ark, the box, or the chest, if you will, which, and then there was the lid, which is called the mercy seat. It was two different pieces. 
So, first looking at the ark, the chest, the Lord gave the directions, specific instructions on its design there in verses 10 through 16. The ark was to be made of acacia wood. We've been talking about that all week, and much like many of the other furnishings. It was to be a, a box-like or a chest-like structure. It's three and three-quarter feet long by two and a quarter feet wide by two and a quarter feet high. The ark was to be overlaid with pure gold both inside and out, and it was to have a gold molding around the rim. The ark was to have four gold rings attached to its four lower corners at the base of the ark. Based upon the scriptures here, the ark was to have two strong poles made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And so the poles were also of acacia wood overlaid with gold there as well. And the poles were to be slid into the golden rings on the ark for the purpose of carrying it. And listen, God was serious about that, wasn't he? Remember when Uzzah uh, 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 tried to, to steady the ark? You know, when the oxen shifted, it shouldn't have been on that... Well, it shouldn't have been on a uh, wagon anyway, and it shifted, and he re- reached out his hand and steadied it, and God says, don't be touching the ark. There's only one group of people that can touch that, and it's the Levites, and you're going to carry it with the staves that are placed therein. And, and so they were put in there, and then once they were inserted, the Bible says the poles were never to be removed. They were a permanent part of the ark. And then the testimony of God, the Ten Commandments were to be placed into the ark, and the book of Hebrews actually tells us that ultimately there were three items placed into the ark, there was the, the commandments, then there was the pot of manna, and then Aaron's rod that budded. And so even to this very day, those items are in that ark. And uh, so, so that gives us the dimensions and the materials for the ark. And then the second piece of this ark was the cover or the mercy seat as found in verses 17 through 21. So look there again, verse 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark Thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. So verse 17 tells us, Thou shalt make a mercy seat. And of course, as we see, we just saw the directions for that. Now to fully understand where we want to go with this this evening, it's important to understand that the Hebrew word for mercy seat means covering or atonement. That's what the word mercy seat, that not the box, the the chest, but the, the mercy seat on top of it, the lid, it means the covering or it means an atonement. And the idea is that of covering of sins, uh, of atonement, uh, or reconciliation be made, being made possible by the mercy of God. And so to help us better understand just what took place inside this most holy place where God dwelt on the mercy seat and how God would grant mercy under the children of Israel, <clears throat> I, I want to read what the high priest had to do to finally enter into God's presence and obtain this mercy for Israel. Because here's this box and it's sitting in the most holy place, and the Shekinah glory, the presence of God is upon it, and so it's not really ever messed with except for one time of year, is it? Unless the Lord decided, the Holy Spirit of God decided to move the camp of Israel, then the cloud would go up, and that was the sign that they had to come in, the Levites, the Kohathites, the Marathites, the Gershonites had to come in, and they had their own specific orders on what they were supposed to do uh, uh, to move. Uh, the Kohathites were the ones to uh, actually move the the, the most holy items, and they would move it to wherever the cloud went, and then they would set it back up. But no one ever went in there. 
no one ever went in there except on the Day of Atonement one time of year to atone for the sins of Israel. So I want to read uh, what took place on that Day of Atonement, and that will help us make some application here. This is from David Levy's book, The Tabernacle, Shadows of the Messiah, and he backs all this up with Scripture, uh, of course. He said, the first, he said, first the high priest offered a bullock as a sin offering for himself and his house before he made an offering for the nation of Israel. Next, he took a censer full of burning coals from the, from the where? Where did he take those? From the brazen altar. That's exactly where he took them. He said he took a, a, a censer full of burning coals from the brazen altar, put two handfuls of sweet incense into a golden bowl, and purged the incense on the coals, which emitted a cloudy smoke that filled the chamber. The high priest returned to the brazen altar, took a basin full of the bullock's blood, and entered into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. Dipping his finger into a basin of blood, he sprinkled the mercy seat seven times. The blood made it possible for God to show mercy to the nation of Israel because of their sins. Let me, say, let me just say this back up this way. We need to understand that in Old Testament times, when they would kill the blood of bulls and goats, the, the blood of bulls and goats do not have the ability to cleanse us from our sins. It's never had the ability. It was never set up to cleanse people from their sins. So every single year, the blood of bulls and goats, bulls and goats, the blood of bulls and goats was taken and it was placed upon that mercy seat. And here's what it did, folks. It just covered the sins of Israel for the next year. All it did is it just put a covering over their sin. That's all it did. The sin was still there. I mean, it's not been taken away. And so next year, he would come in and do the same thing and sprinkle his blood on the, on the mercy seat and it would cover the sins. It would grant them mercy for the next year. But only until Jesus Christ came and died on the cross was our sins forgiven and, 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 and gone forever. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from our sins. And so he said the blood, he says the blood made it possible for God to show mercy, sprinkling the blood seven times spoke of the completed atonement. And then he said the high priest chose two goats to, of equal color, size, and value from the congregation of Israel. He says lots were cast, lots were cast by the high priest to determine which of the two goats were going to be slain. He said the high priest then offered the first goat as the sin offering. Its blood was sprinkled before the mercy seat in the same manner as the blood of the bullock. Secondly, he sprinkled the horns of the altar of incense. Remember we talked about that last night. There has to be blood attached to our prayers. I'm just saying, we plead the blood of Jesus Christ in everything that we do, and, and we need to do more of that and more of that. And so the blood was sprinkled on the horns of the altar, or the horns of the altar of incense, and, uh, uh, and seven times uh, to cleanse it from the contamination of Israel. Third, he went to the brazen altar and mixed the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat into one basin. Dipping his finger into the basin of blood, he sprinkled the horns of the brazen altar seven times, sprinkling or cleaning it from the uncleanness of Israel. So then he took that blood and then he even sprinkled it on the horns of the brazen altar. I'm just telling you what, he was purifying and cleansing it because of their sins with a sacrifice. He was just, they were just covering it. One more time, just covering the sins until an adequate sacrifice could be made for your sins and for mine. It's, it's like, almost like the Lord knows what he's doing here, doesn't he? It's amazing. Now, listen to this part. Here's the part that's, that's intriguing to me. And here's a part that I'd really never ever, ever heard before or saw before until I was studying this Ark of the Covenant out in the mercy seat. He says, The congregation of Israel patiently and prayerfully waited outside the tabernacle, outside of the courtyard, because they couldn't go into the courtyard. 
I mean, the, 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 the Levites would come in, and, or, they would, or they could come in and, and, and bring their sacrifice, but the, you're not going to get two, you know, two to three million people in the courtyard. It's not going to happen. And so the two to three million people, or four million, however many there were, they were spread out throughout the camp. But let me tell you what, on the Day of Atonement, they were paying attention to what was going on in the tabernacle. Because they were paying attention to make certain that God was going to accept this sacrifice. A, a lot depended upon this sacrifice. It was the Day of Atonement. And so this author says, here's the congregation. The congregation of Israel, all two to three million, patiently and prayerfully waited outside of the tabernacle and outside of the courtyard for the high priest to appear before them. Naturally, he says, many questions pass through their minds as they're outside waiting. And I could just picture this. And so the high priest is inside. He's doing his work and he's killing the bullock and he's killing the, the, goat, the, the lamb and lamb and the, the sacrifice, and he's taking the blood, and he's going to the altar of incense, and he's going to the, the brazen altar, and he's taking, in, taking it into the most holy place, to the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, and he's sprinkling it. And this whole time, outside in a periphery, outside of the tabernacle, and outside of the courtyard is the nation of Israel, and they're wondering, is the sacrifice going to be accepted? Are our sins going to be atoned for this year? And they're waiting out there, and they're patiently wondering, and they're looking for the high priest to see what's going to happen. Is God going to accept the blood of the, from the high priest? If God did not accept the blood offering, would he slay the high priest in the, holy, in the most holy place? Or what, what's going to take place? Would, would God be merciful to Israel, or would he bring his judgment upon them? Because they already knew what happened to Nadab and Abihu. They already understood, and that story, that story got around camp pretty quick when they had to drug two, drag two guys out who were burn up from the fire of the Lord because of their disobedience and, and touching something or, or bringing strange fire which they should not have brought. So I'm just saying what, you know, we, we're so far removed from this, we don't understand or we can't appreciate this, but the nation of Israel, they were on bated breath wondering if the sacrifice was going to be acceptable. We want to be found pleasing unto God was their thought. But then, I love this part, the high priest parted the gate of the tabernacle and so the high priest would come out of the most holy place and come out of the holy place, but again, it's a seven and a half foot tall tent, you know, so unless they're up on a, a peak or a hill or something, they can't see in there, and so they're all outside the tent waiting, you know, unless they're trying to jump and see or get on someone's shoulders, did he come out, did he come out, and so they're all scattered out and they're wondering and they're watching that, remember that big gate, that open, that, that only gate to go into the courtyard, and so they're out there watching that to see if the high priest is going to come out. He says, but then the high priest parted the gate of the tabernacle court with his hands raised toward the people, symbolizing that God had accepted their sacrifice. The sacrifice has been made. It's all good. It's all good. We, our sins have been atoned for. The author says, joyous praise echoed through the, throughout the congregation. It was like life from the dead. The atonement had been accepted. Their sins had been forgiven or rolled over for the next year. The author then gives much detail about the other goat, the scapegoat that was let into the wilderness, and the actions of the priest changing his clothes and taking care of the rest of the offering. But what I want us to catch here is, is very important. The Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, we have to understand this, and just please help us get this in our minds. This Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was the very throne of God. God dwelled there. And I don't care where he dwells, it's his throne. I'm just telling you what, I don't care where he goes upon this earth, that place is holy. It is holy unto the Lord, and, and it is His throne. And it was a place of judgment, a, a place where God in all of His holiness dwelled, a place where sin had to be dealt with, because I'm telling you what, 
as we looked at, God cannot allow sin to enter into his presence. We talked about that with the brazen laver. God cannot allow sin into, to enter into his presence. 1 John 1, 5 tells us about that too. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And, and so God is a God of light, and so he must deal with sin, folks. I'm telling you, our sin, we are not getting away with our sins. Can we just be reminded of that tonight? We might think that we have our, everyone fooled and pulled the wool over their eyes. We're not getting away with our sin. All sin must and will be punished. It, it will. And so God in his holiness on his throne, so the mercy seat and, and, and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was his throne. It was holy and he had to deal with sin. He, it was a place where he must deal with sin. But something wonderful happened on that day of atonement. Something wonderful on that day and only on that day they could enter, actually enter his presence with something very special. Something very special happened on this one day and this one day only on the Day of Atonement. When that Old Testament priest entered into the most holy place and sprinkled the blood of the animal sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, and probably he was no doubt scared half to death. I mean, he's going in there with that blood, and I mean, this is like a one-day deal. You know, you go, we're going in there, and we're parting that, we're parting that bell, and we're coming into the presence of God, and I've got to sprinkle this blood. And man, was that four or five? Was that, oh, you know, I mean, how many times did I sprinkle that? I don't know, I'm just thinking about what I'd be thinking about, you know, making certain I did this right. And, 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 and so he's probably nervous, and, he, you know, he's probably wanting to make sure that he does it right because this is the throne of God. He's going to judge sin. He's not going to let us do whatever we want to do. There's no will worship. We can't do things we want. And so he's, it's a throne of judgment where he must and will deal with sin, but something special happened on that day. When that Old Testament priest placed and sprinkled the blood of the animal sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat was transformed from a throne of judgment to a throne of mercy and a throne of grace is what happened. It was a whole different place, if you will. It was transformed into a throne of mercy. The Old Testament priest was most likely, again, scared in the presence of God. But listen, he was nervous about this. And, and, and the Old Testament people, as they were standing outside the courtyard, they were probably nervous. And they were probably fearful as from what we read but what, listen, what he found there, once he offered, listen, once he offered the blood of the acceptable sacrifice, once he, offered, once he stopped by and visited the brazen laver, uh, once the candlestick was trimmed, once the showbread was placed, once the incense was burning, what he found once he had followed God's word was mercy. That's what he found. Now remember, when the priest came out of the tabernacle, it's reported that the people cheered. Why in the world would they cheer? Because they had found mercy from a thrice holy God. We've been forgiven was their cry. That's what this author was saying. You know, we've been forgiven. We've, he's accepted that. And there was joy. There was joy and they were excited about that. Their sins had been carried over again, if you will, for another year until the Messiah would come. Now the application for us today is very, very clear. We've mentioned it many times before, but all these furnishings are a picture of things to come. And this Mercy seat is no different today. Listen, today God still desires to, for us to come to him. He wants us to come to him. We've talked about this at length this week. He still desires that his children to approach him, but he wants us to approach him in the manner that he has prescribed. I'm telling you what, we cannot live like the devil. We cannot do whatever we want to do and expect to have a right relationship with God. It's going to be, it's impossible. I mean, why do we try to fool ourselves? To think that we can do the things that we do or no one else sees it and, and then come into Riverside Baptist Church and sit down and expect God to bless me and to have his hand upon me 
and to guide my, me and my family and to bless my wife and my children. Why do we expect that? We can't eat, ha, have it that way. You can't sit at the table of devils and the table of, of the Lord at the same time. We, we can't do that. And, and so he wants us to have fellowship with him, and he wants us to come to him in the manner that he has prescribed. And the blessing about that is, is that if we do that, if we come to him in the manner that he has prescribed, we too can find the mercy seat of God in the blood-sprinkled body of Jesus Christ. That's what we find. When speaking of this mercy seat, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5 says, And over it the cherubim of glory, showing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Well, that term mercy seat that Paul writes about in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5 is translated of the Greek, it's from the Greek word hilasterion, which means propitiation. You're like, propitiation, that's great. <laughs> what in the world does propitiation mean? Well, in the New Testament, the word propitiation has the idea of satisfying the righteous demands of a holy God. Jesus Christ, when he died, satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God, making it possible for the removal of sin that stands between God and men. Uh, you know, so here I am as a sinner. I can't approach a holy God who can even look upon sin. How in the world can I approach him? How can I get to a holy God? It's simple. You have to go through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation. He made the sacrifice and made it. he appeased the wrath of God so that therefore I could have fellowship with him. You know, when the book of Revelation talks about when the accuser of the brethren comes before the throne of God and, and blames you, and he points his finger at you, and he says, did you see what Pastor Nail did? Did you see what this person did? Did you see what this member of Riverside Baptist Church did? The Heavenly Father says, what sin? I don't know what you're talking about. That, bless, that sin has been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. It's like Jesus Christ gets between them and holds up his hands and said, it's been forgiven. The sin has been forgiven. And I'm like, that's too much for me to comprehend, although I'm very, very thankful. So that's how it makes it possible for us to stand before a holy God is because of this propitiation, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now listen, follow me on this. This propitiation, this satisfying the demands of a holy God was made for us on Calvary, of course, when Christ died and his blood was shed. His blood completely satisfied the demands of a holy God for the judgment of sin, just like with the blood of the bullock and the other sacrifice, and they brought that in, altar, and this altar, and then they finally went in there and it satisfied, he came out and his hands were up. Jesus Christ took care of all that for you and for me. And, and, and so his shed blood completely satisfied, thus making it possible for God to both declare and treat as righteous those who come to him. So when someone comes to him and they're a sinner and they trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they become justified in the sight of God. They become acceptable unto God because of His Son, Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing you and I can do. There's none righteous, no, not one. Our righteousness, as we, they sang about, I think it was last night, or is that filthy rags? I'm just telling you what. We don't have anything to offer Him. Only through Jesus Christ can we have this viable relationship. Now, I think back about the Israelites in Moses' day and how the whole congregation would watch outside that courtyard with bated breath. Man, I try to put myself back in there. Man, again, I hope I, maybe there's instant replay when we get to heaven. You know, we can wind back and, and see some of this stuff. And, and they were watching. And I just think about those people. You know, they're people just like you and people like me in their time, just trying to, trying to get by, you know, and, and, and trying to do what's right and trying to raise a family. And I, and I think about them waiting out the, outside that courtyard and just watching the doors of the tabernacle, excuse me, watching the doors of the courtyard, those eastern doors, as they were outside watching those eastern... Any, any movement yet? No, not yet, Tom. Or, 
whatever, <laughs> just uh, David, <laughs> not yet David, anyone else? No, Ben, I don't know, I'm coming, to, I'm, I'm losing it here on names, and so no, no movement yet, keep your eye on that courtyard door, and so they're out there watching, and they're trying, and they're paying attention, and they're seeing, they're waiting to see if Almighty God would accept the sacrifice and blood of the bulls and goats, and then it happened, the priest would come outside, raise his hands, and the people would rejoice in the fact, listen, I just need to say this one more time, in the fact that God had granted them mercy. Because you deserve to die for your sins. You, deserve, you don't deserve what I'm going to give you. I'm giving you grace. Grace is different than mercy. Mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Grace says, I'm giving you what you don't deserve. And so what they found with this elaborate system of sacrificial system, and going through here and doing this here and going here and, and applying this at this time, sprinkling at this time, coming back and killing this animal and doing this. And what they found when they did things God's way was they found an Old Testament priest with his hands raised saying, we found mercy. We've been blessed. We have been blessed this year. This year on this Day of Atonement, our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been covered. And I'm just saying what it was a time of rejoicing. So here's the point. Because of the acceptable sacrifice, if they would just come to him, if they would just come to him, they could find mercy. But you know what? There's many times in a, in a nation of Israel, as you look back over their history, that they did not follow God's word and that they, they did not follow through with, on the Day of Atonement, did not do what God wanted them to do. So what are they going to find then? They're not going to find mercy. They're going to find the judgment hand of God from the throne of God. They're going to find judgment. They're going to be dispelled from the land. They're going to be taken and defeated, and there's going to be horrible things that are going to happen to them. They're not going to find them. When you don't, when you don't do it God's way, you're not going to find his mercy. You're going to find his judgment, and you're going to find his wrath. But the thing is, well, you know what? He is a mean God. No, because he offers and allows us and is willing to give us mercy if we'll just come to him. But you have to do it, and I have to do it, don't we? We can't hang on our parents' coattails anymore. We can't hang on our pastor's coattails or the staff coattails. I'm a big boy, and you're, we're big boys and girls. And we have to decide on purpose that, you know what, I want to find the mercy of God upon my life. I want to have his blessings upon my life. I need him to help me lead my family. I need him to help me with my job or, or with this or with that. And, and, you know, we need him to meet with us and with the parking lot finances. Let me just tell you what, we'll find the mercy of God if we're doing things his way. If we're saved and if we keep our sins confessed, if we're being the light of the world, if we're perpetually keeping our faces before him, everyone follow me on this. If our prayer life is where it needs to be, you're going to find the mercy of God, my friend. An acceptable sacrifice has been made on your behalf. In the, it's already been made in the person of Jesus Christ. He's already died for you. The blood has already been applied. I mean, he's already, Jesus Christ has already gone through all these steps. Everyone with me on this? He didn't do this. He just hung upon the cross of Calvary, and that was enough right there, boom, to, to cancel the sins, to die for the sins of the world, and forgive those who come and trust him for the forgiveness of sins. So, so the sacrifice, the adequate sacrifice has already been made. There's no excuse. Well, we need to trust him for the forgiveness of sins, and then we need to live our lives in a manner that's pleasing unto him. And if you respond, listen, the blood has already been applied. The Lord is waiting for us to respond to come into his presence. And you know what you're going to find there when you come into his presence his way? You're not going to find an indifferent God. And like when men gathered up here praying and ladies no doubt praying, 
in the in the seats. You know, you know what we you know what we did not find during that time? An indifferent God. That's not what we found. When you come to God his way, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you're not going to find a God who is uncaring and unkind. You won't even find a God who's angry. Just waiting to let you have it. Man, about time you came here. Man, I've been waiting to deal with you. And that's what happens when the kids have been misbehaving and dad comes home. And that's what happens there. That's another story. But you're not even going to find a, a God who's angry, waiting to let you have it. No, no. If you'll simply come to God today with all of your faults and all of your failures, say, I've messed up. But here's my sacrifice, Lord. It's me. I'm that living sacrifice trying to place my life upon the altar. It's me. I'm trying to do Romans 12, 1 or 2. I, uh, if you'll just come to God today with all of those failures, if you'll only be willing to step into His presence because of what Christ has done, you're going to find the one thing that you and I need most today, and that is mercy. You'll find mercy. Man, I need to have that. I, especially in times of my life when I haven't necessarily been doing perhaps the things that I should be doing. Are you with me on that? If I'm backslidden Christians or church members who, you know, not horribly backslidden, but just aren't where we need to be, and we're thinking, man, I can't come to God. You know, this is, I've been dealing with this for three weeks or for three months or for three years or for 15 years, and I can't come to God. God's saying, if you'll just come to me, and if you'll just go, go through the proper manner going through Jesus Christ, and if you'll come and you'll pray and you'll spend time at that labor. Here's what I'm willing to give you. I'm willing to give you mercy and to help you in your time of need. I'm telling you what, that's a blessing right there, folks. Now, let me throw this little caveat in there right now. I'm not saying that God doesn't get indignant with our sloppy response to his calling. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying God's not doesn't, you know, there's righteous indignation. And I'm not even saying that there isn't the demand of holiness and the expression of wrath in the character of God. I'm just saying you're, He's going to deal with sin. I'm not, I'm not saying anything about that. Please don't misunderstand. God's not going to say, oh, you know, you poor child, thank you. Thank you for coming. Go on, it's okay. Go, go, go. No, you know, He's going to deal with sin. Sin must, can and must be dealt with. And so we're going to need to spend that time at the laver. So if you're saved and you spent time at the laver and you're praying and you're offering your life up before Him, then He's going to show you the mercy that you're looking for. So what I'm saying is what the Bible says, that even before we can figure out all that God is, we must first, we first find something that God dearly wants us to understand, is that we find His mercy. He is a merciful God. There may be someone here tonight, and you're not even saved. Friend, let me just tell you what, God doesn't want to destroy you. God's not angry. He's not wanting to you know, throw you into the bottomless pit. God wants to save your soul. If you'll come to Him, you'll find mercy. You'll find mercy. There's some Christians here today, and, and your walk isn't where it needs to be. And I'm telling you what, I know this. I've been in the, I'm telling you, there's some Christians who are, are backslidden, and they're not where they're supposed to be, and they're like, no, God's not. wouldn't use someone like me. I've messed up too much. Let me tell you what, if you come to Him in the proper manner, you'll find mercy. He'll extend that mercy unto you. Well, my prayer life isn't where it needs to be. Get on your knees and see God's face. He'll show you. He'll give you mercy. Well, you know what? I've done this or I've done that. Listen, friends, He'll show you mercy. Maybe you're just unsure about going all in. You know, I, I just don't know about this whole going all in stuff. Or, and, and maybe even with your service to Jesus Christ, maybe the Lord has been dealing with you about getting more, invo more involved. And maybe you're nervous about taking that next step. And I don't know. 
and I think maybe the Lord wants me to join, or I need to get baptized. What, let me just say, whatever the Lord is dealing with you about, I think that you can see here, what you'll find is a God who loves you, a God who cares for you, a God who has been waiting for you, you'll find a God of mercy. He's never turned anyone down yet. He's never turned anyone down yet. I mean, I've seen people come to him and, and with improper motives and a lack of repentance and a lack of remorse, and they're going to have a long road ahead of them. But if you come with a heart right toward God, if you come with a right spirit, if you come broken and contrite, if you come before him in the manner that he has prescribed, and you step into that throne room, oh, mercy's sakes alive, you'll find that God of love. You'll find that caring, compassionate, loving God, that merciful God who's willing to give you grace. Now this mercy seat, as we wrap this up, also helps us to understand how the Lord wants us to deal with those who need the Lord around us. Because remember, we, we find mercy, in, and as a born-again believer, I can find mercy in God, and I can have my heart right before Him. But remember, we're supposed to be that light in this world. So because of that, how in the world am I supposed to treat those around me? Well, how am I supposed to behave in this world? How do we deal with them? How do we treat people who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior? Because I tell you what, I've got co-workers and family members, and they're just not very kind. Well, God wants us to show mercy to those people without as well. I want you to turn in John chapter 8, and then we'll close here. John chapter 8. I want to just show you something. Very quickly, we find the woman that was taken in adultery in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 in verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them and the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. I think it's awful interesting, kind of hilarious, that he's the lawgiver and they're quoting the law to him. He's the lawgiver and they're saying what the law says and he's like, that's me, I am the law, I am the word. I mean, you guys are ridiculous, you know that, don't you? Okay, go ahead. What do you have to say? I mean, he's just very compassionate. And so, then when they continued asking, you know, verse 7, he, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Well, wait a minute. This woman was just taken in the the act of adultery. You know, in the very act and brought to her to him. And and he says, Where are your accusers? And she said, They're gone. And where are those who are going to condemn you? And she said, They're gone. He says, Well, I'm not going to condemn you either. Neither I. It says right there, it says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And so the Lord didn't condemn her. And he let her go her way. And he's like, wait a minute, he just, just, what happened here? He just let her go and didn't deal with her. No, listen, friends, he dealt with her sin. And you have to, there has to be a dealing with the sin. She said, he said, go and sin no more. He dealt with her sin, but he did not condemn her. Why would he not condemn her? Well, let's look at the answer to that in John chapter 3. 
John chapter 3, just turn to your left a couple pages, in John chapter 3, in verse 17, the Bible says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be what? Saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, Jesus Christ didn't condemn this unsaved woman because the fact that she was conceived in her mother's womb, she was condemned already. He didn't have to say, you are the most worthless woman I have run into all week long. I'm just telling you, I don't know. Come on, that's pretty obvious. No, he didn't, he didn't condemn her. He, he dealt with her sin, but he didn't condemn her because of the simple fact that she was condemned already. What did he do? He showed her the love of Christ is what he has done. And so, here, here I am, just follow me on this. This isn't all in my head, and I'm trying to get it out right here. Here I am, as a born-again believer, man alive, I am so blessed, it's ridiculous. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so amazed at how God has blessed me. I have gone through the proper door. I, I, I have accepted Christ as my personal Savior. I'm doing my best to spend time at the labor, and, and you know, and I, I'm trying to be a witness, and, and all these other furnishings and things of this nature, and to come into the presence of God, and when I come into His presence, because of Jesus Christ, I find mercy. And you know what God wants me to do when we leave these doors and what he wants you to do when you leave these doors to be that light that's supposed to be shining brightly, which is pictured by the candlestick. He wants you to show mercy because these people that don't know Jesus Christ as their personal savior, they're condemned already. You know, that grocery lady, the the lady at the grocery counter and she scans your food. It's like she has a big sign on her head that says condemned already. When you see those people at at Walmart, or you see the, the server or the guy at the gas station filling his pump. If he doesn't know Jesus Christ, he's got a big sign on his head that says, Condemned already. Your coworker, your neighbor, your family member who doesn't know Jesus Christ, they're condemned already and they're going to spend eternity in a lake of fire and they're going to pay for their sins. And what Christ wants us to do is to go love on them and show them the love of Jesus Christ. And he wants, he, I'm not saying we can't deal with their sin, you must deal with sin if they're going to get saved. It is repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There's none of this easy believism. Say, hey, you want the mercy of God? Come follow me. No, you're going to have to deal with sin just like Jesus did with that woman taken in adultery. But all I'm saying, friend, is on our path, not only our path, but on the path when we go out there witnessing, we're trying to get them to a relationship with God and what we can show them and what they're going to find when they get into His presence is they're going to find mercy. They're going to find mercy. And that's what God wants from us. And so... I look, at the, I look at who God is, just, just who God is. He's holy, He's love, He's just, He's righteous, He's perfect, He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. But I'm telling you what, we first must need to understand that when, when we approach Him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we're going to find mercy. And so maybe there's some folks here tonight, and I know it's been a long week, and I know we've already made lots of great decisions for the Lord, but I'm just telling you what, never be afraid to come into His presence in the manner that he has prescribed, and you'll find mercy. You'll first and foremost find his mercy, and then he'll start dealing with your sin. He'll start dealing with the things that need to be taken care of. And when we go out there, and we're witnessing, and, and some of those people are very unloving out there in the world. Some people are, are very hateful, and they're, 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 they have animosity toward the things of God. But just show them the love of Jesus Christ. Get them to understand just who God is, that God is willing to save them and forgive them, and to lead them in righteousness. God is a God of mercy, and for that, folks, I'm super thankful tonight. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence again. Lord, I know that, that 
Father, we made many decisions this week, and, but Lord, we just still need to understand that we must come to you in a manner that you prescribed, and you will give us that mercy and show us that mercy that we need. Father, help us to never be afraid to come into your presence and to confess our sins. Help us to not believe the lie of the devil that we've gone too far or have done too many wicked things or that the Lord wouldn't want me. I, I'm too bad of a person. Father, I don't know how many times I've heard people say those very words, the Lord would never want me. I'm too bad of a person. That's just so not true, Father. If we'll come to you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, we will find mercy. And so I just pray that you would just convict hearts. And perhaps there's someone tonight that doesn't know you as their personal Savior. Oh, dear God, I, I pray that they would come and find that mercy that you're willing to give and to cleanse them from their sins if they're willing to repent. And church members tonight, Lord, born-again believers, help us to make certain that daily we're spending time at that labor. We're spending time in prayer and in, the, in the Word. We're coming before your face. And never let us forget that you're such a merciful God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you've done and what you're willing to do in and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand tonight. Thank you for being in the services today with us at Riverside Baptist Church. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we certainly would like to help you with that. You can get more information at our website at rbcstjoe.com or call here at the church. If you're a believer and God has spoken to your heart, I hope you'll take time to turn aside and let him have his way in your life. If we can help in any way, shape, or form, please feel free to contact us. We look forward to ministering to you again.